This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Varied Types by G. K. Chesterton. Chapter 12 The Position of Sir Walter Scott. Walter Scott is a writer who should just now be re-emerging into his own high place in letters, for unquestionably the recent, though now dwindling, schools of severely technical and aesthetic criticism have been unfavorable to him. He was a chaotic and unequal writer, and if there is one thing in which artists have improved since his time, it is inconsistency and equality. It would perhaps be unkind to inquire whether the level of the modern man of letters, as compared with Scott, is due to the absence of valleys or the absence of mountains. But in any case, we have learnt in our day to arrange our literary effects carefully, and the only point in which we fall short of Scott is in the incidental misfortune that we have nothing particular to arrange. It is said that Scott is neglected by modern readers. If so, the matter could be more appropriately described by saying that modern readers are neglected by providence. The ground of this neglect, in so far as it exists, must be found, I suppose, in the general sentiment that, like the beard of Polonius, he is too long. Yet it is surely a peculiar thing that in literature alone a house should be despised because it is too large, or a host impugned because he is too generous. If romance be really a pleasure, it is difficult to understand the modern reader's consuming desire to get it over. And if it be not a pleasure, it is difficult to understand his desire to have it at all. Mere size, it seems to me, cannot be a fault. The fault must lie in some disproportion. If some of Scott's stories are dull and dilatory, it is not because they are giants, but because they are hunchbacks or cripples. Scott was very far indeed from being a perfect writer, but I do not think that it can be shown that the large and elaborate plan on which his stories are built was by any means an imperfection. He arranged his endless prefaces and his colossal introductions, just as an architect plans great gates and long approaches to a really large house. He did not share the latter-day desire to get quickly through a story. He enjoyed narrative as a sensation. He did not wish to swallow a story like a pill that should do him good afterwards. He desired to taste it like a glass of port, that it might do him good at the time. The reader sits late at his banquets. His characters have that air of immortality which belongs to those of Dumas and Dickens. We should not be surprised to meet them in any number of sequels. Scott, in his heart of hearts, probably would have liked to write an endless story without either beginnings or close. Walter Scott is a great and therefore mysterious man. He will never be understood until romance is understood, and that will be only when time, man, and eternity are understood. To say that Scott had more than any other man that ever lived, a sense of the romantic, seems in these days a slight and superficial tribute. 
the whole modern theory arises from one fundamental mistake an idea that romance is in some way a plaything with life a figment a conventionality a thing upon the outside no genuine criticism of romance will ever arise until we have grasped the fact that romance lies not upon the outside of life but absolutely in the centre of it the centre of every man's existence is a dream death disease insanity are merely material accidents like a toothache or a twisted ankle that these brutal forces always besiege and often capture the citadel does not prove that they are the citadel the boast of the realist applying what the reviewers call his scalpel is that he cuts into the heart of life but he makes a very shallow incision if he only reaches as deep as habits and calamities and sins deeper than all these lies a man's vision of himself as swaggering and sentimental as a penny novelette the literature of candour unearths innumerable weaknesses and elements of lawlessness which is called romance it perceives superficial habits like murder and dipsomania but it does not perceive the deepest of sins the sin of vanity vanity which is the mother of all daydreams and adventures the one sin that is not shared with any boon companion or whispered to any priest in estimating therefore the ground of scott's pre-eminence in romance we must absolutely rid ourselves of the notion that romance or adventure are merely materialistic things involved in the tangle of a plot or the multiplicity of drawn swords we must remember that it is like tragedy or farce a state of the soul and that for some dark and elemental reason which we can never understand this state of the soul is evoked in us by the sight of certain places or the contemplation of certain human crises by a stream rushing under a heavy and covered wooden bridge or by a man plunging a knife or sword into a tough timber in the selection of these situations which catch the spirit of romance as in a net scott has never been equalled nor even approached his finest scenes affect us like fragments of a hilarious dream they have the same quality which is often possessed by those nocturnal comedies that of seeming more human than our waking life even while they are less possible sir arthur warder with his daughter and the old beggar crouching in a cranny of the cliff as night falls and the tide closes round them are actually in the coldest and bitterest of practical situations yet the whole incident has a quality that can only be called boyish it is warmed with all the colours of an incredible sunset rob roy trapped in the toll booth and confronted with bailey nicole jarvie draws no sword leaps from no window affects none of the dazzling external acts upon which contemporary romance depends yet that plain and humorous dialogue is full of the essential philosophy of romance which is an almost equal betting upon man and destiny perhaps the most profoundly thrilling of all scott's situations is that in which the family of colonel mannering are waiting for the carriage which may or may not arrive by night to bring an unknown man into a princely possession 
Yet almost the whole of that thrilling scene consists of a ridiculous conversation about food and flirtation between a frivolous old lawyer and a fashionable girl. We can say nothing about what makes these scenes except the wind bloweth where it listeth, and that here the wind blows strong. It is in this quality of what may be called spiritual adventurousness that Scott stands at so different an elevation to the whole of the contemporary crop of romancers who have followed the leadership of Dumas. There has indeed been a great and inspiring revival of romance in our time, but it is partly frustrated in almost every case by this rooted conception that romance consists in the vast multiplication of incidents and the violent acceleration of narrative. The heroes of Mr. Stanley Wayman scarcely ever have their swords out of their hands. The deeper presence of romance is far better felt when the sword is at the hip, ready for innumerable adventures too terrible to be pictured. The Stanley Wayman hero has scarcely time to eat his supper except in the act of leaping from a window, or whilst his other hand is employed in lunging with a rapier. In Scott's heroes, on the other hand, there is no characteristic so typical or so worthy of humor as their disposition to linger over their meals. The conviviality of the clerks of Cotmanhurst or of Mr. Plydell, and the thoroughly solid things they are described as eating, is one of the most perfect of Scott's poetic touches. In short, Mr. Stanley Wayman is filled with the conviction that the sole essence of romance is to move with insatiable rapidity from incident to incident. In the truer romance of Scott, there is more of the sentiment of, oh, still delay, thou art so fair, more of a certain patriarchal enjoyment of things, as they are, of the sword by the side of the wine-cup in the hand. Romance, indeed, does not consist by any means so much in experiencing adventures as in being ready for them. How little the actual boy cares for incidents, in comparison to tools and weapons, may be tested by the fact that the most popular story of adventure is concerned with a man who lived for years on a desert island with two guns and a sword, which he never had to use on an enemy. Closely connected with this is one of the charges most commonly brought against Scott, particularly in his own day the charge of a fanciful and monotonous insistence upon the details of armor and costume. The critic in the Edinburgh Review said indignantly that he could tolerate a somewhat detailed description of the apparel of Marmion, but when it came to an equally detailed account of the apparel of his pages and yeomen, the mind could bear it no longer. The only thing to be said about that critic is that he had never been a little boy. He foolishly imagined that Scott valued the plume and dagger of Marmion for Marmion's sake. Not being himself a romantic, he could not understand that Scott valued the plume because it was a plume, and the dagger because it was a dagger. Like a child, he loved weapons with a manual materialistic love, as one loves the softness of fur or the coolness of marble. One of the profound philosophical truths which are almost confined to infants is this love of things, not for their use or origin, 
but for their own inherent characteristics the child's love of the toughness of wood the wetness of water the magnificent soapiness of soap so it was with scott who had so much of the child in him human beings were perhaps the principal characters of his stories but they were certainly not the only characters a battle-axe was a person of importance a castle had a character and ways of its own a church-bell had a word to say in the matter like a true child he almost ignored the distinction between the animate and inanimate a two-handed sword might be carried only by a menial in a procession but it was something important and immeasurably fascinating it was a two-handed sword there is one quality which is supreme and continuous in scott which is little appreciated at present one of the values we have really lost in recent fiction is the value of eloquence the modern literary artist is compounded of almost every man except the orator yet shakespeare and scott are certainly alike in this that they could both if literature have failed have earned their living as professional demagogues the feudal heroes in the waverley novels retort upon each other with a passionate dignity haughty and yet singularly human which can hardly be paralleled in political eloquence except in julius caesar with a certain fiery impartiality which stirs the blood scott distributes his noble orations equally among saints and villains he may deny a villain every virtue or a triumph but he cannot endure to deny him a telling word he will ruin a man but he will not silence him in truth one of scott's most splendid traits is his difficulty or rather incapacity for despising any of his characters he did not scorn the most revolting miscreant as the realist of to-day commonly scorns his own hero though his soul may be in rags every man of scott can speak like a king this quality as i have said is sadly to seek in the fiction of the passing hour the realist would of course repudiate the bare idea of putting a bold and brilliant tongue in every man's head but even where the moment of the story naturally demands eloquence the eloquence seems frozen in the tap take any contemporary work of fiction and turn to the scene where the young socialist denounces the millionaire and then compare the stilted sociological lecture given by that self-sacrificing bore with the surging joy of words in rob roy's declaration of himself or Athelstane's defiance of de bracy that ancient sea of human passion upon which high words and great phrases are the resplendent foam is just now at a low ebb we have even gone the length of congratulating ourselves because we can see the mud and the monsters at the bottom in politics there is not a single man whose position is due to eloquence in the first degree its place is taken by repartee and rejoinders purely intellectual like those of an omnibus conductor in discussing questions like the farm burning in south africa no critic of the war uses his material as burke or grattan perhaps exaggeratively would have used it the speaker is content with the facts and exposition of facts 
In another age he might have risen and hurled that great song in prose, perfect as prose, and yet rising into a chant which Meg Merrilies hurled at Elenguan, the ruler of Britain. Ride your ways, Laird of Elenguan, ride your ways, Godfrey Bertram. This day have ye quenched seven smoking hearts. See if the fire of your ain parlour burns the blither for that. Ye have riven the thack of seven cotter houses. Look if your ain roof tree stands the faster for that. Ye may stable your strarks in the shalangs of Derncleugh. See that the hare does not couch on the hearth and stain of Ellangowan. Ride your ways, Godfrey Bertram. The reason is, of course, that these men are afraid of bombast, and Scott was not. A man will not reach eloquence if he is afraid of bombast, just as a man will not jump a hedge if he is afraid of a ditch. As the object of all eloquence is to find the least common denominator of men's souls, to fall just within the natural comprehension, it cannot obviously have any chance with a literary ambition which aims at falling just outside it. It is quite right to invent subtle analysis and detached criticisms but it is unreasonable to expect them to be punctuated with roars of popular applause. It is possible to conceive of a mob shouting any central and simple sentiment, good or bad, but it is impossible to think of a mob shouting a distinction in terms. In the matter of eloquence, the whole question is one of the immediate effect of greatness, such as is produced even by fine bombast. It is absurd to call it merely superficial. Here there is no question of superficiality. We might as well call a stone that strikes us between the eyes merely superficial. The very word superficial is founded on a fundamental mistake about life, the idea that second thoughts are best. The superficial impression of the world is by far the deepest. What we really feel naturally and casually about the look of skies and trees and the face of friends, that and that alone will almost certainly remain our vital philosophy to our dying day. Scott's bombast, therefore, will always be stirring to anyone who approaches it, as he should approach all literature as a little child. We could easily excuse the contemporary critic for not admiring melodrama and adventure stories and Punch and Judy, if he would admit that it was a slight deficiency in his artistic sensibilities. Beyond all question, it marks a lack of literary instinct to be unable to simplify one's mind at the first signal of an advance of romance. You do me wrong, said Brian de Boigelbeer to Rebecca. Many a law, many a commandment have I broken, but my word never. Die, cries Belfour of Burley to the villain in old mortality. Die hoping nothing, believing nothing, and fearing nothing, replies the other. This is the old and honorable fine art of bragging, as it was practiced by the great worthies of antiquity. The man who cannot appreciate it goes along with the man who cannot appreciate beef or claret or a game with children or a brass band. They are afraid of making fools of themselves and are unaware that transformation has already been triumphantly effected. 
Scott is separated then from much of the later conception of fiction by this quality of eloquence. The whole of the best and finest work of the modern novelist, such as the work of Mr. Henry James, is primarily concerned with that delicate and fascinating speech which burrows deeper and deeper like a mole. But we have wholly forgotten that speech which mounts higher and higher like a wave and falls in a crashing peroration. Perhaps the most thoroughly brilliant and typical man of this decade is Mr. Bernard Shaw. In his admirable play of Candida, it is clearly a part of the character of the socialist clergyman that he should be eloquent. But he is not eloquent because the whole GBS condition of mind renders impossible that poetic simplicity which eloquence requires. Scott takes his heroes and villains seriously, which is, after all, the way that heroes and villains take themselves, especially villains. It is the custom to call these old romantic poses artificial, but the word artificial is the last and silliest evasion of criticism. There never was anything in the world that was really artificial. It had some motive or ideal behind it, and generally a much better one than we think. Of the faults of Scott as an artist it is not very necessary to speak, for faults are generally and easily pointed out, while there is yet no adequate valuation of the varieties and contrasts of virtue. We have compiled a complete botanical classification of the weeds in the poetical garden, but the flowers still flourish neglected and nameless. It is true, for example, that Scott had an incomparably stiff and pedantic way of dealing with his heroines. He made a lively girl of eighteen refuse an offer in the language of Dr. Johnson. To him, as to most men of his time, woman was not an individual, but an institution. A toast that was drunk some time after that of church and king, but it is far better to consider the difference rather as a special merit in that he stood for all those clean and bracing shocks of incident which are untouched by passion or weakness for a certain breezy bachelorhood which is almost essential to the literature of adventure. With all his faults and all his triumphs, he stands for the great mass of natural manliness which must be absorbed into art, unless art is to be a mere luxury and freak. An appreciation of Scott might be made almost a test of decadence. If ever we lose touch with this one most reckless and defective writer, it will be a proof to us that we have erected round ourselves a false cosmos, a world of lying and horrible perfection, leaving outside of it Walter Scott and that strange old world which is as confused and as indefensible and as inspiring and as healthy as he. End of chapter 12